It is time to answer some big questions about our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light, lasers, optics, and fascinating tech news. Each episode, you'll hear groundbreaking stories from around the world about the fibers of science, from its triumphant past to its audacious future. Brought to you by Photonics Media. You're listening to All Things Photonics. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. In today's episode, we're exploring the origins of the unknown universe and the scientific breakthroughs that have brought us this far. We'll also talk with Nobel Prize winner Donna Strickland and her career and research with Chirp Pulse Laser Amplification. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. A Columbia University team used a 2D material from the transition metal dichalcogenide class to control the phase of light without changing its amplitude or depleting its power. By placing the atomically thin material on top of passive silicon waveguides, the researchers were able to change the phase of light as strongly as if they had used silicon phase modulators, but with much lower optical loss and power consumption. The team hopes to reduce power consumption in large-scale applications such as optical phase arrays and neural and quantum circuits. Researchers at Stevens Institute of Technology created a 3D imaging system that uses light's quantum properties to create images 40,000 times crisper than current technologies. The technology is the first real-world demonstration of single-photon noise reduction using a method called quantum parametric mode sorting, first proposed in 2017 by Yuping Huang. The research could allow for better LiDAR sensing and detection, satellite mapping systems, deep space communications, and medical imaging of the human retina. And finally, researchers from the National Korea Maritime and Ocean University have developed a method for adding metals to organic materials that they claim is simple, safe, and cost-effective. The method will allow for the production of sodium-ion batteries, an improved alternative to lithium-ion batteries, which rely on rare earth materials. Our guest today is Dr. Donna Strickland. She's a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo and is one of the recipients of the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2018 for developing CHIRP pulse amplification with her PhD advisor, Dr. Gerard Maru. Dr. Donna Strickland, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. So first question, what came about during your research and working under Gerard Maru in the 80s that inspired the two of you to design a tabletop terawatt laser? Were you envisioning any sort of future applications at the time? Well, people working in ultra-fast lasers, there's really two reasons. One, either you're trying to make a short pulse to see something that moves faster and you need to be able to capture it quicker, or you're trying to squeeze the energy into a shorter pulse of time to make more power, which is energy per unit time. And so those are the two things people wanted to do. And I have to say that to some extent, those of us in technology either wanted the shortest pulses or the most intense pulses. So it's not as much as you might think about, you know, thinking of future applications as much as, you know, just wanting to be the best. At the time, there was the competing technology. The shortest pulses were coming out of something called dye lasers, but they could not be made energetic. And so they were uh, amplifying them in excimer lasers, which are an ultraviolet laser that can be energetic. 
that was a tough way to go, and eczema lasers are big and bulky and require, you know, awful gases. And there was reasons to do it. People were trying to do high-order harmonic generation. People were trying to do X-ray lasers. People were trying to do various things, much more on the science side than what you would call applications. But this was, this was the point. And so this is how we came up with our way as a competing way to that other technology. Why was this idea so important? Were you looking for anything in particular? Well, for me personally, I, my goal for my PhD was to do a high-order nonlinear optical process called harmonic generation. It had been seen sort of third order up to fifth order. I was trying to jump up to ninth order, mostly to show that I could do it. But again, the point was there were not coherent sources in the ultraviolet and vacuum ultraviolet. There weren't ways to make lasers there. And so this was a way we thought we could get coherent radiation up into other wavelengths. When we're looking back at your time working with Dr. Moo, was there anything that he taught you that sticks out with you still today? Well, my husband, who was also one of his students, I mean, we always joke about how Gerard always would say, you want to be revolutionary, not evolutionary. And that is the way Gerard thought. I mean, he always wanted to have the big ideas and think about the big ideas. I don't know that uh, I have the same whatever as he does, but that certainly sticks out with me, that, that he was always wanting to be revolutionary. Yeah. While you were working on this project together, were there certain obstacles that you faced, maybe didn't? expect, predict, and were there ways that you worked together to resolve them? Well, yes. I mean, it, I think physics is a team sport. It, isn't, it wouldn't have even just been with Gerard and, and me. There were group meetings, and you would bring your problems, and as a group, we would all discuss each other's problems. And, of course, there's always other people in the lab, and uh, when things go wrong, you uh, turn to your neighbor and say, have you seen this, or what do you think we should do, or what have you. But... I think that's just the way science is done. It's, it is a team sport, and it requires conversation back and forth. And you said when you guys were working together, uh, it was the first time in your life that you worked very, very hard. Has anything in your career been comparable to that time when you were developing the chirp pulse laser together? Is anything in that magnitude or potential of that moment? No. I, you know, if I'm a small child, I wanted to get a PhD, so my career goal was to get a PhD, and that's why I went with this attitude I was going to do one of the world's best. Uh, so that was sort of my pinnacle of my career, even from an elementary school. I wasn't thinking beyond that. So that's sort of why I probably went crazy during that period of time. And also, yes, it's, it's opportunity knocked. It's hard to say it knocks twice. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment, can I just ask if early in your life, that you have a, a vivid memory of saying, I want a PhD? remember it and yet you know I can't quite place it all together in my head so it's one of those memories that you know people change I think over the time but but I remember hearing about someone talking about their older sibling going for their PhD and me asking what that was and being told something like it was the ultimate in education and as a child I even knew I belonged in school and so as soon as I heard there was an ultimate in education I knew that I had to get that. You've mentioned that he handed this project over to you Dr. Jard Maru um, and told you to just solve it. Was it really like that? He just drop a stack of papers on your desk and say, go for it? I mean, he certainly gave me the paper about the high-order harmonic generation, and that was up to me completely to come up with, but then we ended up not doing that project. And he had the idea of how to do chirp pulse amplification for a year before he mentioned it to me. The way I remember it, by 1984, there were people now working on fiber optic pulse compression, and it just sort of became somewhat obvious in our heads as to how to go about making CPA. I don't know that he dropped it in my lap. No, it was up to me to be the one in the lab to do it. George is not somebody who went into the lab and did it. It was up to me to do it.
When you think about that process, have you sort of used that same approach with your students today? Probably, yes. I mean, I, I'll get, I, I go to the labs, well, not anymore, not since the Nobel, but I used to go to the lab a lot. I still like to tweak my own lasers. But yeah, I consider it's up to the student to, to figure it out. But then I also want them to come to me anytime there's a problem so we have that conversation because I say we have to always have that conversation. Do you like to push your students? I had read a comment that your students had worked really hard in your class to try to achieve success. In my class? <laughs> yeah, I think students consider me to be kind of a driver that way. And I know that I've had a number of grad students tell me that my grad course is one of the hardest. When you initially stretched out the short pulse laser into the longer pulse, which allowed you to increase the amplification, how did you know the pulse would survive the compression back into its shorter form? It sounds like that would have been very volatile and likely to go crazy. Well, I don't know that we're going crazy. Um, amp the amplification will change the dispersion, and so the dispersion is what stretches the different colors out in time. So the laser rod material's dispersion doesn't have as much to do with gain, although certainly when you start pumping it, you are changing the material. So it might have changed it somewhat, but there was no reason to think it would change it drastically. But, we had, but that's one of the things we had to prove, that it didn't. I also read that your work has been crucial in consumer products like LASIK surgery. So every time someone goes to LASIK surgery, they can think of Donna Strickland. Was it clear from the beginning that this discovery would find its way into so many critical applications? Well, no, I don't think it's ever clear when you start out where it's going to go. I don't think Einstein coming up with the equations for laser could possibly have envisioned all the ways lasers are used. So I don't think those of us, there's always two approaches. You could have an application and say, can you figure a way of doing it? But I think more likely you, you do something and, and let it spread its wings. And so, no, I don't think we envisioned anything like that at all. It certainly was almost 10 years before the eye surgery came along. You just mentioned that physics is sort of a team sport, and you've referred to you and your colleagues as sort of laser jocks. Can you define that term? <laughs> I don't know. I've also, my, uh, it's a term that was used back in the day in Rochester. I don't know how much it's used outside of our group. Uh, and I don't even know if it was a derogatory term or a good term, right? <laughs> so, um, I think it was just that back then, lasers were very finicky. Now you can buy them commercial turnkey. But back in those days, we thought we had uh, good job prospects because we were able to actually tweak a laser and make it work. And so I think it was along the lines that it's not only that we had to use our heads, but we had to actually be able to uh, tweak it and make it work. I was thinking that you wouldn't hear like a football player referring to himself as a jock, but you guys almost take pride in that term. <laughs> I don't know. We all called each other that. I don't know whether it was supposed to be derogatory or not now, but yeah, we took pride in it. Right. Um, you also got the chance to work with Paul Corkum in the 90s. He was noticeable for his work in um, out-of-second physics and also the winner of the 2018 SPIE Gold Medal. How did that experience shape you, and what lessons have you carried with you in your recent work in ultrafast optical science? Uh, yes, it was very interesting working with Paul after Girard. They have very different approaches to science. They're both incredible scientists, so I feel blessed that I got to work with both of them. But Gerard, you know, by the time I finished, he had 30 students, and he would be rattling off ideas as they came out of his head for us all to just to try. And we were, depending on the idea and how far-fetched it was, we would be given so much time to see if it worked. Whereas Paul had a small group when I started working with him. He might have changed now because he has a big group. But he would ponder things in his head a long time, and, and he told me that by the time he did the experiment, he was sure it was going to work. He had, he had gone through every facet of it in his head 
before he would take the time to do the experiment. And so, you know, we had many interesting conversations, right? He would come in and say, oh, this is what I thought of when I was sitting on the beach watching the waves. This is what I thought while I was swimming. This is what I thought while I was mowing the lawn. And so he was constantly thinking and uh, trying to get it all straight in his head before he would do the experiment. So it was a different approach. Both approaches, you know, work for both men. Uh, and so it was interesting as a student and a postdoc to see that those two different approaches to science. Moving on to your Nobel Prize, when you won it in 2018, you were actually, it was the first time a woman had won in 55 years, but I read that you don't like to identify as a female scientist, you just want to stick to the word scientist. If there was a message for you to sort of speak for the masses, is there a role in there for you, or do you just want to represent yourself in the field of scientists and not make it a sort of binary political argument? Well, I th my problem with the issue is that women make up 50% of the population, and no man is asked to represent all male scientists. And so I don't think I can represent all female scientists. I think we're all quite different. And so I don't know that we can be pigeonholed, here's how a woman does it, here's how a man does it. And so this is my problem. On the other hand, I do get that I'm now a role model for young women scientists, and I do get that having role models helps people think, see themselves in something. So I'm, I'm happy to be the role model, but I don't want to be, I have nothing really to say about it. <laughs> That's what I'm... You'd rather be a role model for everyone, not just specifically women? When people ask me, do I have advice for, for girls, I will always say my advice is always the same for girls and boys. I believe in gender equity, and so everything should be equal, and, and I would tell the same thing to both, that you just have to figure out what you really want to do, and then not listen to other people and do what you really want to do. Now, your research trajectory seems to be aiming for the Schwinger limit, which I think if I remember correctly is uh, 10 to the 23rd. 10 to the 29. the Which is a scale above which the electromagnetic field is expected to be nonlinear. And you mentioned to your colleague, Michael Campbell, that beating this limit would be worthy of a Nobel Prize. Usually when I give the talk, I point out, you know, we probably got the Nobel Prize because when the laser came along, it changed light intensity. When CPA came along, there was a real kink in the curve as to, you know, intensity as a function of what year we're talking about. It has rolled over again. This is what I'm saying, is that it's going to, with just using the technology that we have right now, it's going to be harder to get to the 10 to the 29. And that's why I say it's going to need another Nobel Prize winning idea to sort of kick that curve back up again. Do you think that sort of idea will happen in our lifetime? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, it's been 35 years since CPA came along, so it's sort of time for another idea that will kick us again. All the incredible impacts that CPA had, I'm curious, do you, do you have any projections of what impact this next idea could have on the world? No. I just, you know, it's, it's sort of the same idea as, you know, the laser was something without any applications, and I think it just keeps going that way. It's hard to envision the fact that if we get to the intensity where you focus it into vacuum, you create matter. <laughs> what are the practical applications of that would be? I don't know, but uh, one, could, one could hope that maybe, you know, we start uh, doing astronomy right on Earth and just, you know, making the black holes right here. When you think about all that you've accomplished and all the students that look up to you, whether they're in high school or grad school, do you have any off-the-cuff advice for them, who, those who are students who want to work with you or want to achieve the sort of impact you've had? You know, I think, again, if you're doing what you really want to do, you'll work really hard at it. I, I think it's very hard to put your heart and soul into something that you don't really enjoy. 
And so, uh, and you can tell that always with students, that which ones come in and truly enjoy what they're doing, you get the most out of them. So I, this is why I always come back to, you have to really decide what you want uh, and then go for it. But Because this is the beautiful thing about being highly educated is that we do have the opportunity to have fun in our job. And so you want to find out what you find is fun. When you look into the future, do you have any predictions about what will be the most exciting breakthrough in whether it's chirp pulse amplification or anything else you're working on? No, I think we're all just trying to, you know, whether it's going to be in quantum information or whether it's going to be in laser acceleration, can we or can we not accelerate beyond where CERN can do it now? Or can we even build one better than the hospital accelerators? I think those are exciting things looking forward. Which ones come true? We'll see. Do you have any sort of wild scientific fiction hopes for 100 years from now? No, because I don't actually like science fiction movies. <laughs> No, no I, I sort of like to live in the here and now. And this is enough craziness going on right now. You know, I let the future look after itself. <laughs> um, and then finally, in the broad industry of photonics, is there anything that's maybe not related to your own fields that you're excited about? Oh, I don't know. It probably depends on each conference that I go to. Then I'm always hearing something that I find kind of fun. Uh, the last conference I was at, I, I heard this new way of using uh, metamaterials to sort of have a camera that can uh, see polarization. And I think uh, I have colleagues here that use polarization for their studies, and I just thought, oh, I've got to get those people together. So I don't know, just different things come along, and I think isn't that new and different and something to think about. Our guest today was Dr. Donna Strickland. She's a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo and the 2018 recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physics. Dr. Strickland, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. The vast expanse that is our universe could very well be the greatest mystery of them all. And what better way to unravel a mystery than to entangle it with another mystery? Positioned asymmetrically around the South Pole and far south of the Antarctic Circle, Antarctica is the southernmost continent, although whether or not it qualifies as continent is often debated. It's surrounded by the Southern Ocean, or we could also say it's surrounded by the Southern Pacific, Atlantic, and Indian Oceans or again by the southern waters of the world ocean, because depending on who you ask, they'll all have different answers. The continent or non-continent of Antarctica has fascinated explorers for centuries. Even in the late 17th century, after explorers had found that South America and Australia were in fact not part of the fabled Antarctica, but continued to dream of its size as impossibly cosmic. Today, Geological studies of Antarctica are often hindered due to the land being dominated by a thick layer of ice. The known universe is wonderfully analogous to Antarctica, its origins equally shrouded in wistful ponderings limited by the scope of the technology at any given time. The English astronomer Fred Hoyle is credited with coining the term Big Bang during a 1949 BBC radio broadcast when he said, these theories were based on the hypothesis that all the matter in the universe was created in one big bang at a particular time in the remote past. The theory Hoyle was referring to was originated by George Washington professor George Gamow in the mid-40s. But the development of this theory was not itself a big bang appearing in an instant. Instead, it developed like a slow burn on a long wick. Aristotle had first proposed the controversial idea of an infinite universe. 
English theologian Robert Grossetesta explored the nature of matter and the cosmos in his 1225 Treatise de Luce, or Treatise on Light. Listeners may recognize this name from the holography episode, but Christian Huygens' version was published over 400 years later, and also in French. Grossetesta described the birth of the universe in an explosion and the crystallization of matter to form stars and planets in a set of nested spheres around Earth. His treatise was the first attempt to describe the heavens and Earth using a single set of physical laws. If Pope Pius XII had been around to hear Aristotle's theory or to read Grossetesta's treatise, he wouldn't have refuted them. He would have celebrated. Why? Because in 1951, the Pope was declaring that the 1927 expanding universe model suggested by the Belgian priest Georges Lemaitre was scientific validation for Catholicism. He embraced the two seemingly opposing ideologies of science and religion. Pius even thought there was some validity to biological evolution. Georges Lemaitre, we'll stick with George, had proposed the expanding model for the universe to explain the observed redshifts of spiral nebulae. He based his theory on the work of Einstein and the Dutch physicist Willem de Sitter. George was a devout scientist and a Catholic, and he opposed the mixing of science and religion and even went with the Pope's scientific advisor to persuade the Pope to stop making public statements about religion and to stop talking about cosmology. George went to the Pope, who was publicly embracing science, and basically said, stop talking, you're ruining everything. But opposite of the theory of the Big Bang was the theory of the steady state, proposed by Fred Hoyle in 1948. Yes, the same Fred Hoyle who coined the term Big Bang a year later, which was said to be pejorative, but Hoyle fervently deny that accusation. Essentially, Hoyle was opposed to the Big Bang because it suggested a beginning, and to Hoyle, that meant there had to be someone there to initiate the bang, like a creator, which to Hoyle was, quote, irrational. With the steady-state theory, Hoyle was suggesting that the density of matter in the expanding universe remains unchanged due to a continuous creation of matter, thus following the perfect cosmological principle. What wedge could possibly drive these two theories further apart? Enter the cosmic microwave background. In 1948, cosmologists Robert Herman and Ralph Asher Alpher reasoned that if there was a Big Bang, the expansion of the universe would have stretched and cooled the high energy radiation of the very early universe into the microwave region of the electromagnetic spectrum the astronomical community had no interest in this discovery. But early in 1964, astronomers Arno Penzias and Robert Woodrow Wilson of Bell Labs had built a radiometer that they intended to use for radio astronomy and satellite communication experiments. Until May 20th, 1964, when one of their measurements clearly showed the presence of the cosmic microwave background the temperatures of their antenna increasing by 4.2 Kelvin, and they didn't know why. Here's another interesting note. The Halmdel horn antenna that Wilson and Penzias used was originally constructed in 1959 for NASA's Project ECHO, the first passive communications experiment which sent two balloon satellites into space to reflect microwave signals. Now let's jump 60 years into the future. 
It's now 2019 and that mysterious cosmic microwave energy is still a hot topic in the astronomical sector. For the past three years, a team at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics had been strategizing on how they can get a group of highly sensitive telescopes to capture the exact frequency of the cosmic microwave background. It's called the Background Imaging of Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization Array Project, or BICEP, and it's part of a line of BICEP project generation spanning back over a decade. The goal of this astronomical endeavor is really simple. Map the timeline from the very origins of the universe to now. It's a straightforward concept and an intricately complex execution. The general idea is that there was this Big Bang and that left behind what scientists call opaque primordial plasma, which was incredibly hot and when it cooled down, it expanded. And when it expanded, it scattered light into a transparent universe. And the last of that scattered light is what is known as the cosmic microwave background, what those in the know call the CMB. However, that's still just a theory. To prove it, scientists need to detect the polarization of the magnetic waves first generated during the expansion period. This is known as B-mode polarization. It's what Dr. Ben Schmidt calls, quote, one of the greatest scientific challenges of our time. Hi, Emmett. Thanks for having me on the pod. Oh, and he's from Harvard. My name is Ben Schmidt. I'm a project development scientist and postdoctoral research fellow here at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Ben is donating his body to science. Well, he's going down to the South Pole, so basically the same thing. We are getting ready to deploy to the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station in Antarctica. It's already underway right now, and I'm getting to uh, go down to Antarctica myself on Monday, start the journey down. Before we got into Ben's intrepid journey, I had to clear up one lingering question. Recently, I had heard there's a debate about whether Antarctica is a continent. Where do you stand on that? <laughs> well, well, yeah, you had mentioned this when we were talking before the show. My first reaction was, really? Who is, who is making this argument? <laughs> Honestly, it sounds much uh, like, a, like a less grounded debate version of the, uh, of the 2006 discussion in the planetary science community when the International Astronomical Union's definition of a planet was updated, which left Pluto outside looking in in the cold. So when it comes to that classification, uh, that, that seems like it's uh, debatable. In terms of the Antarctica continent discussion, I really don't think there can be much of a, quote, debate that it is a continent. Uh, I did a quick search. I found a few spurious uh, articles attempting to argue that Antarctica and Australia could maybe just be considered large islands like Greenland. There's a number of articles online reminding folks that the Arctic Sea around the North Pole is not a continent, when that's sensible given that there's no land mass below the Arctic ice cap, it's a sea. But unlike the Arctic in the north, the Antarctic in the south has a land continent below its thick ice. That's a big difference between the northern and southern polar regions. But all of that said, let's remember, I'm an astrophysicist, but I'm not a geophysicist. So I'm going to stick with what NASA's official answer to the question, quote, what is Antarctica is. And they say, when they state that definitively, that, quote, Antarctica is a continent. It is Earth's fifth largest continent. It is covered in ice, and it covers Earth's south pole. So I, I hope that works for, uh, for settling any quote-unquote debate over whether Antarctica itself is a continent. So Antarctica is indeed a continent. But Ben can't just take a commercial flight from Logan to the International Antarctic Airport because that airport doesn't exist, and also because there are no direct flights from the United States to the world's fifth largest continent. 
because under the U.S. Antarctic program, personnel deployments can only land during the austral summer, between late October and mid-February. I double-checked the United Airlines flight listings from Boston Logan Airport to the South Pole Station today, and sadly, there still isn't a commercial connection. So instead, Ben had to go from Boston to Chicago. Chicago uh, to Auckland, New Zealand. Then Auckland to Christchurch. All on a commercial aircraft, and then switch to, to military cargo aircraft. A military aircraft to fly Ben 3,000 miles south of New Zealand to the South Pole. And if just one part of the experiment wasn't ready to ship out by October, the entire research team would have had to wait another year to try again. Ben and his team are trying to discover the origins of the universe, an event that occurred billions of years ago, an event that if we were to watch it in real time, would seem to take an infinite amount of time, and they only have a few months to get this just right. Even though we're, uh, we're now in the year 2020, you know, the future, uh, it's still logistically very difficult to get to Antarctica and operate there in general, and even more so to the South Pole itself where we're going. And we're not just going to the coast of Antarctica where a lot of the other research stations are. We're on the continent itself right near the middle of the South Pole. So our telescope, Bicep Array Experiment, is supported by the National Science Foundation, and it's located at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, right, right near the station base itself. And developing the constituent critical scientific instrumentation, infrastructure, and all the logistical supply chains in Antarctica to make that research program happen, make that possible, means that we operate under a project timeline constraint very similar to those encountered when NASA missions attempt to meet a given launch window. If you want to avoid missing out on a whole year, you could always try being a winter over. Those are folks that we have on site to run the program, run the telescopes throughout the nine-month winter period where the flights aren't possible. And we have two such winter overs this season, and let me say their efforts are truly heroic. For most researchers, including Ben, there's still the matter of getting back. You need to board the final flight from the South Pole before that sun sets and the air travel becomes hazardous in mid-February, which I can say I'll be sure to get on to make sure that I get back to Harvard uh, and not spend the rest of this year on ice. No pressure. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that Antarctica is not in the top 10 most coveted vacation destinations. So I had to ask, how do you prepare for such an arduous journey? Turns out, Ben was pretty prepared. You know, I have no illusions that I'm some sort of professional athlete doing this sort of thing. But I have done similar things in terms of field work in the past. I did my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. And there I was also developing experimental cosmology telescopes focused on making temperature and polarization measurements of the cosmic microwave background possible. Only instead of uh, doing this at the South Pole, when I was there, where the current project I'm working at with bicep array experiment is located, which sits at an elevation of around 11,000 feet in Antarctica, we deployed our telescope in the Atacama Desert region of northern, northern Chile, located at an elevation of around 17,000 feet. So over the several long-term deployments I completed to bring that telescope into operation as a member of that team between 2013 and 2015, of course, these are all you know efforts that take dozens and dozens of people to get done. You know, As we're down there, I got pretty used to the sort of challenges of the field work at remote, high, dry locations. And the biggest name of the game when talking about is, uh, you know, your preparation is taking what your body gives you in these environments, you know, making sure that you're doing work deliberately, safely, and slowly in, in order to do the, the work properly and also not, you know, put yourself into a bad situation physically. 
Um, the same holds for the sort of preparation for the South Pole, even though the ambient temperatures and conditions are arguably even more extreme than Chile, even though it's at a little bit uh, lower elevation. To go down, everyone that deploys, including myself, needs to go a rigorous physical qualification process. And you really need to go through basically every medical and dental check in the book to get this done. It's a long process. Uh, mine took a few months. And especially that, that holds if you're a first-time visitor to Antarctica like I am, and it requires getting a lot of tests and maybe even some elective procedures done. So, for example, if you have impacted wisdom teeth like I did, um, you're required to get them removed. And even though I had mine since I was around 17 years old, I'm 33 right now, uh, I got them out this summer in preparation for the uh, physical qualification process, which I, I cleared. I got cleared in mid-December, uh, and that means I'm greenlit medically to travel down. Ben was greenlit, but the team still needed a manufacturer for their telescopes. And finding the right one was adding further pressure to the deployment schedule. Because the telescopes had very specific design requirements, the team was having trouble finding a business partner capable and willing to build them. Until they met Joe. Hi, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure, my name is Joe Serio from Vertex Optics. I'm vice president. Joe's team is the blue-collar and rolled-up sleeves type who received the blueprints from the boys at Harvard and built the bicep telescope. That telescope needs to be able to detect the photons left over from the CMB, like super old radiating heat, which has been hanging out for billions of years in a place where heat can't be conducted. The bicep array experiment will operate more than 30,000 custom-designed detectors, probing the CMB for both temperature and polarization. This is where those precise calculations come in. The photons are going to meet the telescope at a temperature of negative 454 degrees Fahrenheit, just a few degrees warmer than the average temperature of empty space. So that they're sensitive enough to detect the temperature, the telescopes are cooled to a negative 460 degrees using a scientific refrigerator called a sorption fridge. From the telescope's humble beginnings as 100-pound blanks to the exact requirements needed to manufacture them and the precise aligning needed to attach the lenses, optical experts were stretched to the limits of their capabilities. Joe's team was confident, disciplined, and not about to bat an eyelash. We went and figured out that our machines could do it, and Jason and I aren't really scared of anything you're going to throw at us. That's Jason Tiersen, the president of Vertex Optics. Joe said it took all of their combined experience to take on this massive project. You know, I've spent most of my career working on prototypes. I've had a hand in a wide range of different projects, different diameters, materials, you name it. But Joe wasn't shy about the grandiosity of this project. And this one goes right to the top of the list as far as difficulty, mostly due to size and the different types of materials we're working with here. Yet in the end, it was Joe and Jason and their Vertex Optics team that got it done and helped send Ben off to explore the unknown universe. This is something that could be monumental and historic, right? So we're really, really thrilled to actually be asked to be a part of it. And with that, Ben was off to Antarctica, flying on an LC-130 cargo plane that's outfitted with skis to land on the ice in classic cinematic fashion. That flight is about an eight-and-a-half-hour flight from Christchurch down to McMurdo, which is the U.S. main uh, base and logistics hub on the coast of Antarctica. And that took another, uh, it was supposed to be a few days spent in McMurdo before moving on to the pole, but ultimately due to a number of, of pretty severe storms. We were, we were stuck there for uh, about eight or so days before we could get out. Then, 
When Ben finally landed, he was greeted by the sweet embrace of the Austral summer. It's quite a shock. It's even more shocking, uh, potentially more impressive than uh, just landing at McMurdo, which is already, you know, you kind of have that feeling like, wow, I'm on, a, on another continent and it's kind of otherworldly. But it wasn't just the cold that was shocking. Nothing could fully prepare Ben for the overwhelming vastness of a giant ice continent. When you get down to the South Pole, you're on an ice sheet. There's basically a featureless plain of ice all around you to the horizon. And it's really beautiful, and it's very, uh, very impressive. And, and you, you kind of get this, you know, I, I, at least I had this really excited feeling like, wow, after all of this buildup, uh, both in North America working on the project and then the long journey down, we're finally here. While Ben had an active role in the research and coordination of this massive project, he was quick to give credit to his team, some who had already been there for months, waiting to greet him. You know, it tipped my hat to them spending so much time about two and a half to three months, some of them at the South Pole, building up the telescope from scratch. Just really impressive work and uh, a really successful season for the, for the BICEP Ray team. The BICEP team's plan is to deploy four telescopes. Ben and his team have already launched one. Each telescope goes out with a different frequency, ranging from 30 to 40 gigahertz to over 200 gigahertz. The wide range of frequencies is necessary to cover all sorts of signals traveling through the Milky Way. The CMB has a frequency between 95 and 150 gigahertz, and that will get two telescopes. But it can be confused with the signal of galactic synchrotron radiation, or magnetic fields, and the radiation emitted from galactic dust. In order to separate out these various signals, two additional telescopes are deployed so the team can be sure which signal they are receiving. In the next Austral Summer season, the team will deploy the two CMB frequency telescopes, followed by the final telescope for the galactic dust the following year. And even more CMB instruments will be launched over the next decade. The BICEP Array project is going to be operating for several years beyond the uh, full deployment in 2021. The CMB Stage 4 project is slated to come online and projected in 2027-2028. So that's a, a good eight years or so more, seven or eight years of development and testing and maybe some test deployments before that is getting towards over the, over the end of the decade, fully deployed and then operating over a uh, you know, five to seven year period somewhere in there. And this isn't just Harvard. Ben is hoping the project will continue to grow to include both U.S. and international academic and government collaborators in the future. It's really exciting to see the sort of things that both our project is going to be doing in the short term, the Bicep Array project, and then us joining with many other groups in the global CMB community and seeing what we can do in terms of technology development and optical engineering and detector development to really push the, the state of the art in the field forward for experimental cosmology throughout this decade and, and well into the 2030s. The 2030s. The future. This project is never going to end. Or will it? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question. There's really never an end to a lot of this stuff in terms of trying to push the, push the field forward and look over new horizons. It's never going to end. One could say that Penzias and Wilson back in the 60s, they discovered the cosmic microwave background, and I suppose one could have stopped there, but there's a lot of mysteries to be unlocked and uh, implications for fundamental physics that have come through you know, getting to the quote-unquote era of precision cosmology that we're in right now. And what motivates us a lot as researchers, as physicists, as scientists is, you know, looking over that horizon and seeing, you know, what don't we know about the cosmic microwave background that's going to be unlocked in coming years? 
I might be getting a little overdramatic. This is really just one frame of a larger picture. Each of these individual projects do end. They come to a, a date where you decommission them. They basically have been overtaken by the state of the art of the technology in the field, you know, the optics, the detectors, the cryogenics, and things like that. But the study of the field is a really long-term endeavor, and it's something that if you consider the, the pursuit of studying the early universe and constraining primordial nature of you know, how the universe developed in its, in its early stages, that is a long-term endeavor, and that's basically going to span many projects to come. The great human endeavor, whether by choice or divine directive, to forever comb through the clouds of the unknown, to boldly go and grow in knowledge until the lines on our faces are more mapped out than the stars themselves. It advances our species, speaking into existence ambitious believers further seeking answers, who by faith are seeing when reason seems bound, but what is found through their sound and their fury signifies something. There can always and will always be a possibility to shine a light in places where before we couldn't see and bring humanity out of the darkness. You step back and you take perspective on our role as, you know, in the universe. And it's really kind of uh, fundamental to our understanding as humanity and, and just who we are and how we develop and kind of your perspective in the universe, just to know how the early universe developed and, and moved forward in that way. That'll do it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our guests, Donna Strickland, Ben Schmidt, and Joe Syria. Our engineers are Alan Shepard and Brian Healy. Our featured artist is Kid Animal out of Los Angeles. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite music app. Thank you most of all to you, our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a story or you just want to reach out, you can email us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Subscribe wherever you may be listening and never miss a new episode. You can also subscribe to this podcast on our website, photonics.com slash podcast, where you will find episode notes, links to complete stories you heard, and some interesting side stories that didn't make it in. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. You've been listening to a Photonics Media production. Thank you.